Well, hello there. Welcome to the show. I suggest you pull up a chair. You might want to take a few naps in between. <laughs> it's going to be a long one. Um, Archie and I have come up with a new system. We're trying to bridge the gap between audio and visual. And a couple of things I would like to point out. No one knows how secure the internet will be in the near future. I would suggest you consider learning some new skills. What new skills, you ask? Well, one would be to download audio files. Because if you have your own little library set up, if there's any disruptions in the internet, you would certainly have plenty of material to keep yourself busy doing something that you would enjoy doing something. I would also strongly suggest that we, we know that they're tracking people via their phones. And that came up this week with the truckers. And one of the truckers indicated that when they were crossing, there's these trucker convoys going on now. Are they real or staged? I really do not know. But one of the truckers pointed out when he was coming from Canada to the U.S. before he got to the border stop, they already had tagged all of his information from his mobile phone. I've talked about this in the past, not going to go there again, but three top countries for cell phone usage, U.S., China, and um, India. So I would consider this. A lot of people got rid of their computers and switched over to their phones. You might consider some better plan than that because your phone is already tracked and nabbed at this point, okay? I have a cheap smartphone that I got from Verizon. I think I paid $50 for it. You will find the online prices are different than the in-store prices because when I went in to buy the phone for the $50, they wanted to charge me $150. So what you do at that point is you just politely point out to them that their online price was $50 and they want to go ahead and just give you that price right away. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't say it too loudly. So there's probably other people like yourself who have gotten rid of their computers and maybe you can find a cheap deal on a new laptop. Laptops don't have to be expensive or fancy. I have a very cheap laptop and it works great. 15 inch screen, I can do a lot of work. Part of the reason to flood people onto phones was to control you and to monitor you. So you might consider what you're currently using. If you could switch to a cheap cheap alternate phone or possibly a laptop where you could store data and files, that would be the way to go. And because Archie knows more about these things than I do as far as downloading files, what we're going to be doing is this. We'll be using the website to give you additional show information so you won't have to be jotting down links and stuff while you're listening to the show but you can go to the website psychopathinyourlife.com and there will be a tab up at the right that will say show notes so each show from now on we will provide you with the links and other details that you can take a look at on the website the reason I'm sharing my research is to hopefully engage you to also look further for yourself. There hasn't been enough looking around on our own. So I would encourage you to fill in some of the blanks of what I'll be talking about and go look for yourself. 
because there's some very interesting things going on. So yeah, use the website as your resource because you'll be able to find additional links and things that I talk about in the show to go to further your knowledge about what I've been talking about. The show today is going to be titled, Is the United States a Paper Tiger? What do I mean by Paper Tiger? Well, let me explain that in a minute here because today's show is going to define how they came up with the word psychopaths, how that got developed. And interestingly enough, all roads lead back to Ted Bundy. So I will be talking about several things today and um, we'll have them into categories. I'll be talking about first, I'm going to be revisiting New Orleans. Why New Orleans, you ask? Well, just a lot of reasons why. So you'll understand when you listen to the shows. New Orleans is still something I'm circling around. A lot of things came out of New Orleans. For example, they had that horrific Hurricane Katrina, which I believe was created by these people, right? So Katrina became very interesting to me in several deals they did there. Well, one deal they did was they had a bunch of people locked up in jails in New Orleans when Katrina hit, and they abandoned them. They left them there in that jail. So it helps to show you what kind of people we're dealing with here, okay? So, yeah, I circled back to Katrina because of the people left locked up in jails and also because of the trailers that got created for Katrina, They created trailers for people to live in that were actually toxic. And yeah, it's a long, windy story. And then also, I wanted to circle back around New Orleans because I wanted to take a closer look at what was going on with the mental wards in New Orleans. Because remember, we have all those people being dropped off in New Orleans from, you know, Ireland and Germany and all kinds of places. And what were the mental facilities there for those people? And also there were other things going on. They not only had the asylums, they had these hospitals for poor people. So I gave you information about the one that I found in New Orleans. So yeah, New Orleans is kind of a wild story and I would recommend that you take a look at some of those links over on the website because I will tell you in advance if there's anything graphic in the visuals and there are not. Um, I've also included a very interesting movie that came out in 1957 that was created by these people. What happened is we had a chain of command from what I can figure out, okay? Supposedly, there was a person named Piniel, P-I-N-E-L, who was the um, originating person in the world of psychiatry, took a very good look at that person. That person was who Cleckley based their work on. Cleckley is the one who did the Mask of Sanity. Cleckley, in taking a new look at Cleckley, I mean, it is a crazy story about Cleckley, okay? So anyhow, and one thing that I didn't get back to in the show, and I might later, because I was talking about when Cleckley intersected with a person named Cider Stricker, a Virgil Cider Stricker. Virgil was a physician who was a nutritional specialist. And I may circle back to them later because I think it was during Snyder's 
Dicker's era. He was born 1889 to 1964. That is where I'm thinking all of our bad information about nutrition came from. So I may be circling back on that one because I found something absolutely fascinating about this Snyder sticker person who connected with Cleckley in the nutrition business and possibly the usage of corn. Yes, you heard me right, corn, C-O-R-N. Yeah, it's something else. So anyway, so there's a lot to unpack. Um, so, you know, your comments are always welcome. Um, why do I think the United States is a paper tiger? Well, <laughs> because I do. <laughs> What's a paper tiger? is a literal English translation of the Chinese phrase zaouli. <laughs> In simplified Chinese, which I can't read any of this, I'm just acting like I can. Anyways, the term refers to something or someone that claims or appears to be powerful or threatening, but is actually ineffectual and unable to withstand challenge. The expression became well-known internationally as a slogan used by Mao Zedong, chairman of the Chinese Communist Party and paramount leader of China. He used that against his political opponents, particularly the U.S. government, the term paper tiger. Okay, So uh, it is also called an ancient phrase that Robert Morrison, the British missionary, and lexicographer translated the phrase as a paper tiger in the book Vocabulary of the Canton Dialect in 1828. John Francis Davis translated the Chinese phrase as paper tiger in a book about China and the history which was published in 1836. In a meeting with Henry Kissinger in 1973, Mao Zedong claimed in a humorous aside to have coined the English phrase, which provoked laughter all the way around. Well, yeah, um, we're in a dual world. I would say that Paper Tiger is a pretty good example. We're looking at some pretty unusual people here. They're willing to poison themselves. They're willing to take excessive amounts of drugs. They're willing to do a lot of things to take the rest of us down. So I welcome you to the show today. Thank you for joining me. It's going to be a long, windy one. So we open with this song, Looking Out My Back Door. And some days, that's what I feel like. I'm just looking out my back door at what is out there. It is a circus act. Best way to describe it. Does Paper Tiger make sense to you? I don't know. Just listen to the show and come to your own conclusions. So I will chat with you very soon. Let's talk about mental hospitals and charity hospitals in Louisiana. One thing that I've been looking at to establish dates are when did they cook up these hospitals and things. There was a couple different things going on. They were setting up the mental wards 
and they also set up charity hospitals. So because I'm still focused on Louisiana right now, I'm going to be talking about two of the facilities there that have my attention. One is a started out as a charity hospital, okay, and that hospital was there to service the poor. So the hospital was opened on May the 10th of 1736. This also starts to give me some dates to look at. I'm still looking at 1700s, but more focused around the 1800s is where this seems to play out. <clears throat> Excuse me. It was founded on a grant. The grant was from a person named Jean Louis. He was a shipbuilder and sailor from France. However, he would die in New Orleans a year before the hospital would open. That's a shame. The last thing he wanted to do before he died was to provide a hospital for those who were indigent in New Orleans. He did just that with the charity hospital. That was what it was originally called. <clears throat> the hospital was first opened and named the Hospital of St. John. It can be found in the French Quarter today. This was formerly known as Bienville and Chartres Streets. The hospital would be built a mere 18 years after the city would be founded by the French. So now we have another landing point here because we have the French supposedly founding the New Orleans area and getting this hospital going. It was also the second oldest continuously operational hospital in the United States. The hospital was very popular and soon after the building another facility was built. This second facility is located on Bazin Street. It was built in 1743. In 1785 another third facility was built. It was then named San Carlos Hospital. It was named thus to honor the King of Spain because New Orleans was then ceded to Spain in the year 1763, so it became San Carlos Hospital during that era. Well, and unfortunately in 1809 a fire broke out. <laughs> so we can kind of assume the whole 1700 story seems to be a little bit flimsy here. <laughs> The hospital was destroyed in 1809. There was no building left for the hospital, and the temporary hospital would be found at Cabildo for about a month. It was in a residence for about it was at a residence for about six months. I love these stories. It would also be held at a plantation for several years until the fourth hospital was built. That magic number four. The new location was the end of Canal Street. This project was completed in 1815, so now we have another pretty solid date if we kind of take a look at the 1700 stuff as being a tiny bit skeptical. <laughs> uh, the hospital was criticized because it was underfunded and inadequate. The hospital had a fifth location that was built on Common Street. In 1834, it would be run under the Sisters of Charity. So 1834 from 1815, we're now under the Sisters of Charity. See, this whole deal with these nuns and religious people were most of the lure for getting people to go into these hospitals because between the doctors and those lovely religious types, they seemed like safe places, right? 
So the Sisters of Charity would run the hospital for nearly a century. And then it was at this time that the hospital would partner with a medical college. Doom, doo, doo, doo. When they enter those research colleges, trouble begins. So in 19, excuse me, in 1858, yellow fever became an epidemic. There were 2,700 patients that were admitted with yellow fever, and close to 1,400 had died from it. I'll have to look into yellow fever later. That year alone, over 11,000 patients were seen. Well, that's a lot of patients in a little 1834 building run by some charity nurses, right? New Orleans would keep expanding, and the demand for medical service was growing. The hospital was no longer big enough to accommodate all the needs of the city. This is when the sixth location was built. It would be the second largest hospital at the time with close to 2,700 beds. The authority of the building was the Public Works Administration, so I guess the uh, Charity Sisters are no longer involved. <clears throat> the people who were responsible for building the hospital are architects who also built the Capitol Building in Louisiana. Isn't it crazy that these famous uh, architects also build these hospitals and things, all within their own little circle, right? There was another building built next to the hospital in 1931, which is now a health science center, another dangerous word to look for. The hospital was known for serving those who did not have insurance and being ranked level two in the nation for trauma centers. Yes, a lot of these teaching hospitals become desirable places for doctors to want to go and um, function in. And here's the reason I've heard this from doctors, so I'm just quoting what they're saying. If they go and work in a teaching hospital, like one of these charity hospitals, they see an influx of patients that they would not normally encounter, okay? Because us poor people don't tend to run to the doctors, so they could get more case studies going. And also, let's face it, we're talking eugenics, right? So that, that's what's really behind that whole thing. Um, the 1960, in 1968, the hospital would lose a malpractice case. Must have been pretty bad for them to lose a case, right? The court had ruled that a child who was born outside of a marriage, I don't know, became some health care, I, I don't understand this thing. Okay, so let me move along here. Um, I started looking into all of this stuff because of Hurricane Katrina and some weird convoluted way I ended up here. So <laughs> um, just stick with me here. This will all start to make sense in a bit um, because these this stuff all connects to other things that I'll cover in the intro. But anyways, Hurricane Katrina hit. The hospital would have severe damage from flooding after Hurricane Katrina. In fact, headlines were made from evacuations of patients in the hospital. Spirit of Charity was a temporary clinic that was established to help treat those injured from the storm. However, the building would eventually relocate near the Superdome. In 2007, the sister hospital called now this uh, just don't worry about the names. They changed names a million times. And now the Sister Charity Hospital is called University Hospital. They took over the emergency care that was provided by the Charity Hospital. 
and they build a new center and this hospital took over both the charity and the university so yeah all these mergers and all this kind of stuff so um, in 2006 an architect firm was hired to advise repair and restructure to the facility they had determined that the structure was good in fact it was ahead of the time it was built it was determined that rehabilitating this hospital would be the best way to get back to practicing but when the hurricane hit everybody was evacuated they got a little better deal than those inmates because um, depending on how I position these shows the inmates got abandoned so the people at this hospital actually got evacuated um, and that is good news so they must have had some sort of evacuation plan um, the hospital was empty and remained that way for 12 years now and so that hospital is still evacuated okay and that had 125 billion dollars of damages and yeah so that hospital sits evacuated that started out to treat the poor in New Orleans is now sitting there shuttered and any pictures I can find will be over at the website psychopathinyourlife.com just click on the tab that says show notes and you'll see some interesting reports there so that's what I have for that charity hospital and I'll be back next with what happened to the prisoners that were there in New Orleans during Katrina On this file I will be talking about the prisons in New Orleans I got there in such a windy way I was um, I've been looking into the oil boom business in this country after I was talking about the fake um, gold booms actually oil booms are real and they're a thing and all the crooked deals that have to do with oil in this country um, and that is a massive file <laughs> And it, it's an alarming deal with all this oil and stuff from many levels. One is the toxic level of amount of um, products that we in this country use that come from the oil industry. For some strange reason, maybe not having to do with eugenics in this country, a lot of things are allowed to be used here, unlike other companies, like we have an alarming amount of petroleum products used. But let me not wander off too far there. But so yeah so I was originally looking at um, the oil boom business well the oil boom business led me to Katrina why Katrina well because out of Katrina came these toxic trailers what happened was after the flooding and, and there'll, there'll be links about this over on the website psychopathinyourlife.com just look for show notes and for this any particular show there will be the notes and things you might want to look at I'm just sharing with you my details so anyway so yeah so Katrina okay so in order to get housing for people after Katrina FEMA um, contracted for a bunch of trailers I'm not going to make this a FEMA trailer story here but 
long story short, what happened was FEMA cooked up, oh, I don't know, several hundred thousand trailers, okay, for people to live in after Katrina. That was a solution. Well, come to find out the trailers were toxic and too toxic for people to live in. So doing things the way they always do things in this country, those trailers were later sold to people knowing they were toxic. Basically what they did was they found out the trailers were toxic and they moved the trailers and you'll have to go look at the whole story. I'll have the links posted there. It's a very interesting story. The whole idea here in sharing my research is to hopefully motivate you to go look further because we've essentially got here because not enough looking around, okay? So anyway, so that's why I'm sharing my files and I hope that you will take advantage of it because there's a lot more to these stories, okay? So these FEMA trailers end up getting sold after they knew they were toxic. They got sold a few years later. So what they did in order to sell these trailers, they just put a sticker on them that said, not for humans to live in. Well, I, what is the plan of a trailer if no humans could live in it, right? Well, unfortunately, a lot of these stickers got removed. Well, that's the whole point of a sticker, right? To remove it. <laughs> so anyhow, so the stickers get removed and these trailers get sold. Well, who was buying these trailers? Well, people from the oil boom business. So yeah, so that's how I ended up back in Louisiana and Katrina and these trailers. Because people in the oil boom business, it's much worse than the, uh, well, I, I'm not going to start equivalenting. It's a horrible existence for people that are now currently in this country in the oil boom business. And I will have to get back to that later because I could really go on a tear on this one. But anyway, so these trailers are now being used and lived in by people people who are struggling to survive in this country. It's just another level of eugenics that I'll hopefully get back to pretty soon here. So yeah, so these trailers from FEMA. So when I was looking at, um, so I ended up wandering back to New Orleans. So while I was looking around New Orleans, I ran across some information about the prisoners in New Orleans. Like what happened when Katrina hit what happened to those people that were locked up in prisons in New Orleans? Well, quite a horrifying story here. So um, the headline read, New Orleans, prisoners abandoned to floodwaters, officers deserted a jail building, leaving inmates locked in cells. This was from September 22, 2005. As Hurricane Katrina began pounding New Orleans, the Sheriff's Department abandoned hundreds of inmates in prison in the city jails. And I dug up a report by this Human Rights Watch group. Another part of their controlled opposition. Part of the way some of these deals work is then we all sit back and think, ah, oh, good, Human Rights Watch has its handled. <laughs> I don't need to worry about it anymore. But anyway, so yeah, but they do provide interesting reports, right? So it's not like they don't document this stuff. It's just you have to understand why they're documented and why is this even a thing in the first place, right? Why were people even ever in prison? <laughs> and why were they left in prison? So anyway, so inmates at... And I'll also have links. The, the kids that I like a lot, they call those proper people kids. 
um, that have the YouTube channel that explore old buildings, they explored this building. And it is a hot mess right now. And right next to that building is the Sheriff's Department. And in that abandoned building are people now living there as of right now, 2022. Yeah, so we have all these containment areas in this country. And what they basically are are areas that everybody has pretty much agreed that poor people can go and shoot up drugs and do whatever they want as long as they stay within this area. Now, I believe this prison, when you look at those videos that I'll have links for over the website, I believe, um, and I would tell you if there was anything graphic in any of these ahead of time, okay? I believe that these people living in this prison right now, 2022, next to the cop station is another containment zone. That's what I would call it. Same thing we have Skid Row and all of that. So anyway, so um, inmates at Temple Man 3, Temple Man 3, <laughs> one of the several buildings in the New Orleans Parish Prison compound reported that as of Monday, August 29th, 2005, there were no correctional officers in the building which held more than 600 inmates. So the officers had all checked out of the building and left the inmates behind. These inmates, including some who were locked in ground floor cells, were not evacuated until Thursday, September the 4th, four days after floodwaters at the jail had reached chest level. Of all the nightmares during Hurricane Katrina, this must be one of the worst, said this researcher from Human Rights Watch. Prisoners were abandoned in their cells without food or water for days as floodwaters rose toward the ceiling. Human Rights Watch called on the U.S. Department of Justice to conduct an investigation. Yeah, um, and the good thing is, is that... Um, there were 517 inmates who are missing from the list of people evacuated from the jail. So they were forced to stay there locked in cells for four days without food or anything, chest high water, and they lost the records of 517 people. Bless those people's hearts. I hope they escape the system. So they said the sheriff did not call for help on evacuating the prison until Monday, August the 29th. Yeah, they didn't even try to get them help. Um, this is who we're looking at. These are the people in charge. This is what they think of us. Other parish prisons had called for help on the previous Saturday and Sunday. This prison was not completed until Friday, September the 2nd. And you'll need to watch those clips to put these dates into your brain because this is pretty horrific level stuff, okay? And unfortunately, the majority of these inmates, now I don't know that because nobody really jotted down many records, but visually looking at the inmates from the clips that I'll have posted, it looked like the majority of them happened to be black or African-American inmates. These prisoners were taken by boat. Yeah, there's, they, they took them by boat to an overpass and left them out there in the sun. So inmates... By Monday, August 29th, the generators had died. This was like the first day in, leaving them without lights and sealed in without air circulation. First day out, right? The toilets backed up. 
creating an unbearable stench. They left us there to die, said an inmate. Um, as the water began rising on the first floor, prisoners became anxious and then desperate. Some of the inmates were able to force open their cell doors, helped by inmates from the common area. All of them, however, remained trapped in the locked facility. And so, yeah, um, I won't go into all the details here, but you could well picture that it was not a good picture. Um, a number of the inmates told Human Rights Watch they were not able to get everyone out from their cells. Um, they set fires to blankets and shirts and hung them out the windows to let people know they were still inside. Several correctional officers told Human Rights Watch there was no evacuation plan for the prison, even though the facility had been evacuated during floods in the 1990s. It was complete chaos, said a correctional officer with more than 30 years of service. When asked what he thought happened to the inmates at Templeton 3, he shook his head and said, Ain't no telling what happened to those people. At best, the inmates were left to depend for themselves. At worst, some may have died. Human Rights Watch was not able to speak directly with the sheriff, the highest ranking person. What a surprise. A spokesperson for the sheriff's department told Human Rights Watch that search and rescue teams had gone to the prison and she insisted that nobody drowned, nobody was left behind. Well, I guess that doesn't really account for those 517 inmates who they lost track of. The interesting part of this entire story is many of the men, and they looked black to me from looking at the pictures and stuff, held at the jail had been arrested for offenses like criminal trespass, public drunkenness, or disorderly conduct. Many had not even been brought before a judge and charged, much less convicted. And that is the story of the Katrina prisons. Okay, the first one was the charity hospital for the poor in New Orleans, and then the what happened at the prison there. And now I'm going to be talking about where I actually kind of started off here, which is the mental hospital in Louisiana. I wanted to swing back by and take a look at how and where were they locking up people that got off of all of those boats? You know, the boats that came through New Orleans, that port. Well, first headline I ran across, Louisiana's 170-year-old mental hospital is quickly deteriorating with more than 600 patients inside. The main building at Eastern Louisiana Mental Health Systems in Jackson, Louisiana dates back to 1848 when it opened as the first state-operated mental health hospital. Still not done with those old buildings. What happened to it? Well, it's tucked away in the town of Jackson 
It is one of only two state-run mental hospitals left in Louisiana after years of budgets, cuts, and closures. Nearly all of its patients arrive through the criminal justice system after being deemed incompetent to stand trial or not guilty by reason of insanity. And some of this will make sense to you in a while when I get to the subject of how did they come up with these insanity defenses. They were started by none other than the predecessor to Robert Hare, Cleckley. Took a deeper look onto them. So yeah, so they're being shuffled now through the streets, through the jails, and that's the new mental war. It's funny how we've come full circle, right? Those wards started off to house prisoners, and we're back at it still 170 years later. Louisiana's first state-run psychiatric hospital, which opened in more than 170 years ago, is deplorable, antiquated, and quickly deteriorated, as more than 600 people are still held there as of today. I believe 2022 people are still inside of this facility. The, the people are saying that they need to build a replacement hospital. Um, the state legislature first called for a state mental institution in 1847. We keep circling back around that mid-1800 date. So this place was being talked about allegedly after people got off of all those boats but I think around this era was when the majority got off the boats so could could coincide with all of that so according to historical records the state asked its architect not to make the facility look like a prison we remember they got a lot of us into these places on a voluntary basis volunteer on our own saying you can help me please take me into your nice sanatorium or kind relatives saying this person needs help let's take them there so there's a lot to why I'm looking at these old buildings that facade make it look like it's not like a prison right well, that was because likely people were voluntarily entering these places. So, and I have a little bit more about that in a bit here. So, when the first patients arrived in 1848 from jails and New Orleans City Asylum, they found an elegant Greek Revival style building with a three-story portico. What's a portico, you ask? Well, we learned a new word today, kids, because I had to look up. A portico is a porch leading to the entrance of a building or extended as a colonnade with a roof structure over a walkway supported by columns or enclosed. Yeah, you see those big porches. I, I would call them being those big porches on the front of these estates now we know they are officially called porticos so we learned a new word um, this idea was widely used in ancient Greece and has influenced many cultures yes they look took a little bit of the Greek a little bit of the Gothic how did this get exposed well funny they have a story for that in 1980 a reporter for the Times Picanye named Alan Citron got a job as an orderly at the main campus. 
by then known as East Louisiana State Hospital, and he exposed questionable patient deaths, negligence, and corruption in a series called Century of Shame. Citron's reporting prompted a state investigation and promises for reform. Now, where have we heard this story before, huh? Seems like reporters stumble into these places, um, researchers I've talked about trick the system and enlist themselves as mental patients to expose things. Um, didn't a few people write books to expose this stuff? Yeah, one trick ponies, right, again. Yeah, so that exposure, then it gets taken care of, right? Well, not really. Um, so now they say that White Collins Historic Building is used for administration, and the campus is known as Eastern Louisiana Mental Health System. So yeah, uh, they have a separate maximum security unit, and that's about four miles away, quite a little complex there. So yeah, they have that whole thing there. Um, and it was about um, keeping them isolated and locked up in a separate part of the town. And now the entire story has changed around to where it all started because inmates and people off the streets in need of psychiatric care are taken to jails. From jails, they're now putting them back into mental hospitals. Funny how 170 years full circle Nothing has changed. That is part of the plan, not the bug in the system. And speaking of nothing has changed, there's some interesting work I've been looking into as far as how and why this all started. Because we tend to think that when the 14th Amendment happened, that was to so-called free the slaves, right? Well, they pulled some very tricky footwork in that deal. And that's what I'll be getting to later because, in fact, everybody in this entire country is part of the slave system. Yes, legally by law, how the courts run in this country, we are all considered guilty until proven innocent. We're in a dual world. So yeah, so next I'll be talking about um, the people who set all this up, the researchers. How did this all really happen? Because I was looking into something else and wandered back over here. So yeah, how it all happened? It all happened in such a way that I had a head-snapping moment because of course I've looked into Cleckley and I've looked into Robert Hare and I've spoken about them in past shows. But you know, there's something about when you know more, you can look a little bit different, right? Well, I uncovered some very interesting things about Cleckley's involvement in actually creating scenarios to make us appear insane. And yeah, it's pretty interesting. And I had always wondered about Robert Hare's interest in um, serial killers. Well, I found the connection. Talk about an aha moment. So, yeah. And they were also involved in this part about getting us locked up. So I will get to that. I think I'm getting to that next. So anyways, but the court system I won't be getting to today because that is a whole tangled mess that is fascinating. But anyways, so onward we go.
Okay, in looking at all of this, there's something that I had to wind back to take a look at. And why is that? Well, when you know more, you look a little bit harder, right? I decided that in order to make the podcast functional, instead of giving you links and whatnot, I already create show notes So um, for myself because I like to look at things like, what do these pictures look like and where does this connect to that so what we're doing is sharing this data so while I was looking for the website I thought well why don't we just do a new tab called show notes and let's remove this other tab well what was the other tab well the other tab was from the two researchers who wrote the foreword to my book and they said something interesting that snapped my neck around and got me looking again at Robert Hare Cleckley and how all of this insanity stuff got going. How did we all end up with all these labels and stuff? So it was interesting. So, so anyhow, so here is what I removed. It was what Dr. Gacono and Cavisto what they wrote as for the forward to my book titled what is a psychopath perhaps no area of scientific study so naturally calls upon non-scientists to grapple with its most basic questions as does the field of personality psychology from the moment we wake up to the time we go to sleep we are typically inundated with stories of other people's behavior, whether it be loving, destructive, or anywhere in between. We learn what happened, who did what, when they did it, and how others responded. We get the facts. But whether consciously or not, we all go beyond this information that we can so clearly see and hear. Without an understanding of cause and effect, why others do what they do, our worlds feel like little more than a series of unintegrated and incoherent facts. And so we all grapple with the basic questions faced by personality psychologists. Why do people do what they do? And given what this tells us about them, how might they act in the future? In fact, given just how naturally we seem to infer motives for others' behavior, one might feel sympathy for Dragnet Detective Joe Friday's uphill and probably futile battle to get his interviewees to stick to just the facts, ma'am. This seems to violate our, e our need to understand others, even when, even when especially when, their behavior is cruel and appears incomprehensible. Shepherding Checkley's 1941 model of psychopathy into contemporary clinical and forensic practice, Robert Hare developed the psychopathy checklist. That was quoted from Hare 1991-2003, which have become the gold standard for evaluating psychopathy. Mirroring Cleckley's emphasis on both trait and behavioral aspects of psychopathy, the psychopathy checklist contained two stable factors. The first factor 
callous, remorseful use of others is characterized by egocentricity, callousness, and remorseless, and correlates with narcissistic and histronic personality disorders. Low anxiety, low empathy, and self-report measures of Machiavellian and narcissism. So they reported that they have low anxiety, low empathy, and all of that. The second factor, antisocial lifestyle, represents an irresponsible, impulsive, thrill-seeking, unconventional, and antisocial lifestyle and correlates most strongly with criminal behaviors. It also correlates with lower socioeconomical backgrounds, lower IQ, less education, self-report measures of antisocial behavior, and the diagnosis of conduct disorder and antisocial personalities. Conduct disorder, I'll try not to interject too much into this guy's words, but conduct disorder is the buzzword they're using to ensnare children into this. So anyway, so continuing on. Given the pull we all experience to understand not only what someone has done, but why they did it, it is perhaps unsurprising that the antisocial syndromes have received so much empirical attention. After the initial reactions of horror and fascination, typically elicited by the acts of psychopathic individuals, after these have passed, the questions most people struggle is with why. Contemporary clinical and forensic science has aided in this understanding, beginning with the work of Pinnell in the early 1800s. And next, I will be talking about Pinnell because this whipped my head around to look further at Pinnell and then closer at Cleckley and here again. So yeah, so I'll continue on here. However, none of these pioneers' contributions toward any understanding of psychopathic individuals would have been possible without these stories of the psychopaths that they encountered. It is easy to lose sight of the centrality of these stories, in large part because they are so rarely detailed. Yes, I think I'm the only person who has actually, <laughs> actually, <laughs> excuse me, actually done interviews with them, <laughs> but wasn't one of them. This is a case of the um, wolves rolling over the chicken nest, right? I don't say this lightly. All of these people are also transgenders. All of them are also psychopaths who have come up with all these definitions. So let me get my going back here again. So yeah, so that drew my attention because I thought, Pinnell, how did I miss this guy? Well, Pinnell enters into all this stuff to do with the criminal justice system. So let me get back on track here. So let me, they said, however, none of these pioneers' contributions toward our understanding of psychopathic individuals would have been possible without the stories. Yeah, okay. It is easy to lose sight of the centrality of these stories, in large part because they are so rarely detailed. In the pages that follow, Diane Emerson provides readers with a rare opportunity to enter the personal lives of three male psychopaths through their own words through the careful organization of their everyday stories of who, what, when, and where 
Emerson ultimately provides the building blocks for readers to understand why these individuals do what they do. Without such stories, there is little hope for understanding. Well, yeah, that is very, very true. Not much hope for understanding because they set us up all of this time to only focus on the uh, serial killers. That's been the entire emphasis, focus on those serial killers. And that's where this story gets very, very interesting about how the serial... Now, I've known the serial killers were their focus for many, many, many years because that has been Robert Hare's focus all these years, those serial killers. He hangs around the FBI. They're all focused on serial killers, right? Well, I found the link by looking at this Pinnell guy. So next, I'll give you an overview of this Pinnell person. So the... Pecking order was Pinnell is considered the godfather, actually, of psychiatry, interestingly enough. And he has some very interesting things in his bio. So first I'll talk about Pinnell, and then I'll talk about uh, Cleckley, some fascinating stuff there. Um, actually, some pretty hair-raising stuff, and the simplicity of how they tricked us. I mean, this is just what keeps me going, right? how easy this whole system was that they tricked us into this trap and how the manipulation toward the serial killers happened with our best friend Ted Bundy. So anyway, continuing on with Pinnell here. Okay, let's talk about Pinel. P-I-N-E-L is how the name is spelled. And upfront warning, this file is kind of a hot mess, so I will wander along and share with you why I thought he was important. Philippe Pinel, 1745 to 1846, was the first to describe patients with psychopathic traits. He is considered the founding father of modern psychiatry, who first described a group of patients afflicted with mania sans délire. I guess that means insanity without delirium, and that would have been in 1801. So the two-factor model by him, by Pinel, divides psychopathy into primary factor one and secondary factor two. Primary psychopathy involves interpersonal and affective factors, such as coldness and callous manipulation, whereas secondary psychopathy is more about risky, impulsive behavior. Yeah, this is why they have these... Um, diagnostics still confused still to this day because still to this day the DSM-5 and the psychopath researchers Robert Hare and this gang have not ever fully agreed upon what the terminology is. Funny how that works, right? Confusion leads to more confusion and I guess they were grappling with the fact that they are who they were trying to describe. So, probably not more complicated than that, right? 
Philippe Pinel believed that in order to treat a mental illness, but now they have it switched so it's a personality disorder and not classified as a mental illness. But the person's individual perspective and history must first be understood and he engaged in therapeutic conversations to dissuade patients from delusions and offered benevolent support and encouragement. For those cases as regarded as psychologically incurable, Peniel would employ baths, showers, opium, camphor, and other antispasmodics, as well as, I don't know, bleeding, and, and they did all kinds of things. He also recommended the use of laxatives for the prevention of nervous excitement and relapse. So, Peniel is generally seen as one of the most important physicians to have transformed the concept of the mad into the patient's needing care and understanding, establishing a field that would eventually be called psychiatry. His legacy included improvement of asylum conditions, broadly psychosocial therapeutic approaches, history taking, broad numeric assessment of courses and illnesses. Yeah, later Peniel became the emperor's consulting physician. And I, I never figured out what emperor. I'll have to get back to that. A member of the Ac Academy of Science and finally in 1804, a knight of the Legion of Honor. So Peniel, he died in Paris of a cerebral hemorrhage at age 81. They have a lot of issues with brain hemorrhages and things from hormones. Just saying here. Okay. Um, Peniel was a son of a master surgeon who practiced in St. Paul, a village between Castres and Toulouse. His mother, Elizabeth Dupoy, came from a family that had, that had since the 17th century produced a number of physicians apothecaries and surgeons. Boy, good for that family line, right? Despite this medical heritage, Peniel's early education at the couple places I can't even pronounce was an essentially literary one. He was greatly influenced by the encyclopedias, particularly Rousseau. Having decided upon a career in religion, he enrolled in this facility in 1761. So then he went on to study to get his MD in December 1773. So uh, in 1774, Pignel went to Montpierre, where for four years he frequented the medical schools and hospitals. Funny how this just happens, right? Just drops in on these schools. He there began to formulate and to practice the principles that he later recommended to his students take written notes at the sickbed and record the entire course of a severe illness. This <laughs> early jotting down of notes is what we call it. <laughs> he supported himself by giving mathematical lessons, conducting a private anatomy course, and writing theses for rich students. <laughs> he later met some person named Chaptal, who later acknowledged Peniel's influence upon his intellectual development. In 1777, Peniel presented two labomechanical papers on the application of mathematics to human anatomy, 
So then in 1778, not to bore our socks off here, uh, Padel went to Paris. He carried with him letters of recommendation to somebody called Jacques' cousin, who advised him to give up medicine <laughs> and devote himself to the exact sciences. He visited libraries and hospitals and frequented salons, and he had met a um, gathering place. So, yeah, they all gathered. Um, I don't know. Somehow he became, uh, in 1784, he became an editor in which he published a number of articles chiefly concerned with hygiene and mental disorders. This is how he, he's wandering into the psychopathy deal here, right? <laughs> In 1785, he translated this book called The First Lines of the Practice of Physics. He also wrote articles on medicine for the Daily Journal de Paris. In 1788, published a new edition of some opera. <laughs> Peniel took no active political role during the revolution, but devoted himself to attempting to aid those who had been prescribed. Among them, Condor, I looked at this Condornet person, and I just got totally lost in that weed pile. So <laughs> the Condornet set person had to do with writing down and jotting down notes about things. That's all I really remember. So on August the 25th, 1793, he was, his friends insisted that he become um, involved with his hospital where he was able to begin implementing his ideas on the humane treatment of the insane. He had previously been a frequent visitor for the mentally ill, but had been unable to convince the director, who was primarily concerned with making a profit, to accept his therapeutic notions. <laughs> so, when he took over this place, he had the chains removed from the patients, an event commemorated in both paintings and popular prints. So you can look for Pinel, P-I-N-E-L, and some famous paintings about patients having their chains removed. I would have to argue only to be replaced with other chains, right? So maybe not as visible chains, but chains the same, right? Okay, then, um, oh, May of 1795, he became a chief physician a post he had retained for the rest of his life. He was in charge of 5,000 pensioners, aged women, and chronically ill patients. So while he was there, there was a 600-bed ward for the mentally ill, and 250 beds were for the uh, actually acutely ill patients, okay? Just keep following along here. It gets better. Okay, um... Yeah, Pinel, um, in 1795, he became a professor of, yeah, he's a, he's a very busy guy, very, very confusing to try to follow his path here. But yeah, Pinel is the one that they uh, claim got this ball rolling, okay? <laughs> so, um, he um, just struggled, and uh, he divided disease into five classes, fevers, plagamisms, hemorrhages, neurosis, and diseases caused by organic lesions. Like I've been saying for years, they truly 
and I never realized to this extent, they truly have been making this up since the very beginning. See, because I believe that we never needed doctors in hospitals, and that was part of their plan. So cook up this plan, and while they're cooking up this plan, they are, in fact, experimenting on us to learn how this stuff is actually working, right? So I'm not going to get too much crazier about Peniel here, but he did do a very significant textbook and went through several editions, among which important variations may be found. In the first, for example, Peniel refused to acknowledge the distinguishing features of scarlet fever with pleural fever. So I don't know. They get into all these fever things, and I have to say, and I'm just thinking, okay, simply thinking. I think a lot of these things that they became, they they started to experiment about. Okay, things like schizophrenia, uh, these fevers. I'm getting the distinct idea that there's a strong possibility that they're giving these people these diseases, right? Or somehow these people are diseases possibly from hormone experiments gone wrong that is driving all these people with diseases and mental anguish into the arms of these people. See how it works. You create a problem and then you rush in like the hero for the fix. And nobody notices that you're the one who created the problem. And it becomes a very circular kind of a deal. So, yeah, let me wrap up about Pinel because he's kind of, well, <laughs> um, Peniel's psychiatric work effectively transformed the prison for the insane into a hospital. See, we go round and round and round we go. So, um, Peniel's classification of mental diseases retained the old divisions of such illnesses as manic, melancholic, demented, and idiotic. So, yeah, um, he had some pretty... Um, serious things going on there. Um, so I don't know. I'm not going to get much more into Pidiel at this point because it's not like, you know, it's not like I confirm that any of this is real. Um, so let me scan along here. Um, yeah. So Pidiel is the one that these people, um, here's a quote here that's good. Um, in the early 1800s, Peniel is actually considered a reformer. And if you look back at shows in the last few months, we had that Dix woman, Dorothy Dix. She was considered a reformer. Kirkbridge, these people are all reformers, right? And then they get those other weasels in there writing articles for newspapers to expose it. And then the reformers take over. Have you started to notice any pretty distinct patterns in all of this? Uh, so... He was considered a reformer in the early 1800s, and he began to view the insane as people who had lost their reason beyond because of exposure to severe stress or shocks. Yes, this is a part that I find interesting. They saw people as insane who had lost their reason because of exposure to severe stress or shocks. So that leads me to start wondering is a lot of this analysis coming from they created shocks and I'll be getting back to that later with this Tavistock and how the age of enlightenment all got going. So just put a pen on that one because they down the road, 
and I don't want to jump down the road right now, but down the road, what they did was they created scenarios to observe us being in shock and awe. Well, that gets created by wars and analyzing what went on with the wars, and that's jumping ahead. So, yeah, they're looking at the cause of stress or shocks back then, right? Interesting, because... Are we not living in a world that is constantly stressing and shocking everybody? So, um, his thing was using fewer restraints. Yeah, they believed that patients could be helped by moral treatments. These included friendly discussions of the patient's problems, chores or occupations to discipline their time, and guidance for their interactions with others. Looks like early therapy, right? Early therapists. See, they needed to distance us from our own emotions and more importantly, from each other. So if you have a problem, don't talk to somebody in your family. Go talk to a complete stranger who is a therapist who would likely get recommended by your doctor who would then recommend you see how it all works. So they keep you within their little thing. Basically, their deal is, is that we are terribly horrible people to begin with. So we need all of these cures to fix ourselves up. Well, I would argue the opposite. But let me get back to seeing what I find interesting about Peniel. Because he, of course, had a fascinating life. <laughs> he was born in the south of France. Uh, he was a son and nephew of physicians. I talked a little bit about that before. Um, he spent 15 years earning his living as a writer, translator, and editor. So, yeah, and the old regime prevented him from practicing medicine in Paris during that time. Okay, so the faculty did not recognize a degree from, anyway, so he failed twice in the competition. <laughs> which had awarded him funds to continue his studies. See, here's here's how some of this story starts to get kind of confusing sounding, because I think, and I'm just thinking, okay, I think that Wikipedia is their system for tracking all of the data they're, they're, they're sponging out to the world, right? So a lot of these stories over time will take wings in a lot of different directions. So this one was kind of interesting to me because of how he just rose up through the ranks, right? Just started off as nothing, just a lowly person writing um, articles. And um, so the faculty did not recognize a degree. In the second competition, the jury stressed his painful mediocrity <laughs> in all areas of medical knowledge. <laughs> and his assessment seemingly so grossly incompatible with his later intellectual accomplishments that political motives have been suggested. Well, yeah, probably because Peniel was just a cooked up figure, right? So that you're going to have conflicting views among their little historians down the road. Discouraged, Peniel considered immigrating to America. So, yeah, um, I don't think he did immigrate. He was still hanging around Paris in 1784, but let me get back on track here. Um, so his story gets just too confusing to get too involved. But he, um, 
I don't know. He published a bunch of stuff. Memoir on Madness was something that he did. Um, you know, if you want to take a look at Pidiel, do take a look. But he is the one that they're hanging their hat on as far as how they learned all this stuff. <laughs> Buyer beware, right? Um, it just is a... Um, he This moral judgment thing is what he operated under. Pinel generally expressed warm feelings and respect for his patients, as ex exemplified by, he said, I cannot but give enthusiastic witness to their moral qualities. Never except in romances have I seen spouses more wor worthy to be cherished, more tender fathers, passionate lovers, pure and more... I don't know what this guy's talking about, but yeah, this guy is this pretty complicated in a interesting way here. So yeah, um, his influence, I'll close with this. Pignel is generally seen as a physician, I guess if you ignore his beginnings as a writer and stuff, who more than any other transformed the concept of the mad into that of patients needing care and understanding, establishing a field that would eventually be called psychiatry. His legacy included improvement of asylum conditions, broadly psychosocial therapeutic approaches, history taking, nosography, which is the science of the description of syndromes, broadly numerical assessments of courses. So yeah, he kind of, um, Peniel's actions took place in the context of the Enlightenment. Yeah, and I'll be getting back to the Enlightenment here. But yeah, you know, funny how all these reformers come in. They notice these things. They do a few things. And gee, I don't know. Maybe I'm just too cynical after all these years. But it doesn't appear to me that much really changes. So let me get back on to um, the really good one. You'll, you'll enjoy Cleckley. Cleckley... <laughs> Quite a guy, quite a guy or gal, however you want to look at it. Definitely a CIA agent. There's no doubt Cleckley is an agent. So, here we go. Okay, let's talk about Cleckley. And before I get into Cleckley, let me interject this strange little thing. I'll be talking next about Cleckley and then um, this person called Cider Striker, who gets involved in all this cabal here with Cleckley, gets into the vitamin business at some point, and interesting things I found about that. So it'll be Cleckley now. I have some odd details about. I don't know, Freud, and then um, then we'll talk about Robert Hare, and that will bring us up to date with this hot mess of a file. So let me pull up the file on Cleckley and see what we have here. Okay, so I had something weird here about, um, I'm interested very much so in this idea of schizophrenia, okay? Um, very suspicious disease to me. Why exactly? Can't exactly tell you why right now, but just because I'm still thinking. 
Okay. Um, Sigmund Freud, 1856 to 1939. And his dis disciples influenced much of the 20th century psychiatry. And by the second half of the century, a majority of psychiatrists in the U.S., although not in the U.K., believed that mental disorders such as schizophrenia resulted from unconscious conflicts originating early childhood. But I found out something interesting about schizophrenia. Um, he was a director of the U.S. National Institute of Mental Health. No, no, somebody from that group said this. From 1945 to 1955, it was nearly impossible for a non-psychoanalyst to become a chairman of the department. I don't know what that means. But anyway, so um, in the later part of the 20th century, they had neuroimaging techniques. They had genetic studies and pharmacological breakthroughs, such as the first anti-psychotic anti drug, chlorazepine, completely reversed the psychoanalytical model of mental disorder. So, and it returned it to more of a biological thing. So Freud, in all of his ponderings as far as strange sexual things, which I'm not going to get into that whole deal, but take a look. So at present, mental disorders are primarily seen as a biological disorder of the brain. Although it is also recognized that psychological and social stressors can play important roles in triggering episodes of illness and that different approaches to treatment should be seen not as competing but as complementary. Bring the digging into the mind together with the medicine part, the pills. Now, what I found interesting is that... Um, this thing with um, uh, schizophrenia that I've been looking into, um, and remember, I'm not a medical expert, so I'm just kind of wandering around here with these diseases. Um, there is a possibility because schizophrenia, my suspicion is that schizophrenia could be triggered by hormone use. Why do I have that suspicion? Well, I've had it for a very long time. I started out with a file on diseases, like that's how I figured out that cleft chin was by going after and looking up diseases. Well, and they all seem to relate to hormones because I believe we weren't born with diseases, but they created diseases through the use of hormones. And I would caution you, just because you might know somebody with one of these diseases, does not make them a transgendered person gobbling down hormones. It could make them a child who was given hormones as a baby against their own will. It is the sum total of things that we take a look at here, okay? So people, they have been distorting our DNA for a very, very long time, okay? So anyhow, so yeah, so um, there are signs that all excuse me <clears throat> schizophrenia uh, it had some common things right now they're discovering with other brain disorders including strokes depression and alzheimer's disease well strokes that has to do with the heart right they're after our hearts where do these vaccines end up giving heart damage 
got a whole file on hearts. This country has an alarming amount of problems with hearts, an alarming amount of children with heart problems. So yeah, I think it's a pretty decent guess that some of this stuff is likely getting triggered from hormones somewhere along the chain. Whether people are taking them willingly or they're getting them, you know, early on through this DNA flipping thing. So that out of the way, let's get into Cleckley. Hervé Milton Cleckley, born September 7, 1903, died January 28, 18, oh, excuse me, 1984, not that long ago. He was an American psychiatrist and pioneer in the field of psychopathy. His book, The Mask of Sanity, originally published in 1941 and revised in new editions until the 1980s, provided the most influential clinical description of psychopathy in the 20th century. I have also provided a link for this book on the website, psychopathinyourlife.com, under the show notes section. You can download this book for yourself and take a look at it. It was basically some views and some, you know, interviews he may or may not have had with patients. I'll leave it at that. So the term mask of sanity derived from Cleckley's belief that a psychopath can appear normal and even engaging, but that the mask conceals a mental disorder. By the time of his death, Cleckley was better remembered for a vivid case study of a female patient published as a book in 1956 and turned into a movie, The Three Faces of Eve, in 1957. So, I did a little bit of a timeline on Cleckley because he has a windy trail, and I may break this into a couple sections. I don't know yet. So, anyway, so Cleckley very influential. This movie, The Three Faces of Eve from 1957, I watched it last night. Um, well, <laughs> I had a hard time getting past when you watch the movie. I will also have a link for a free copy of the movie at the website so you can take a look at the movie. Nothing horrific in the movie, okay? Now, around that time, there was another movie um, 10 or 20 years after that, called Sybil, S-Y-B-I-L. Now, I would not recommend Sybil. Sybil was a little bit drastic, okay? But the the thing is, is that this Three Phases of Eve came along at a fascinating time in 1957 when they were fully engaged in convincing us that we were all crazy and needed their help, right? So watch the movie for yourself. Now, the the movie... Uh, well, they can almost appear camp-like when you know more about what we know now, right, about how all this worked. And I had a hard time in the beginning of the movie because the psychiatrist who first diagnoses Eve, how it is this, there's this woman called Eve White, okay, and she supposedly splits into different personalities. It was Eve White and Eve Black and then the three-faced would be the reconciled one. So what this said to me, and please look for yourself, was that 
it showed the husband questioning his wife being nutty because she was obviously in this other fake personality, right? And what happens to all this is how they were modeling our behavior because what was the solution? Well, take this nutty wife Eve to the psychiatrist and I couldn't get past that guy's chin. He has the most wicked cleft chin. <laughs> By that point, I was kind of doubled over thinking what's going on here. So yeah, it models the perfect scenario. It made it acceptable for Eve's husband to question her behavior and then to turn her over to these specialists to diagnose her. See, and so this, this book, was written by Cleckley, okay? Um, well, pretty fascinating, right? You, you'd have to you have to watch the movie to see why I'd be saying all this, okay? So his report of the case popularized the controversial diagnosis of multiple personality disorder. Um, the concept of psychopathy continues to be influential, and so yeah, so he he. Cleckley, the godfather of psychopathy, made this theory. And remember, it's always usually women who need correcting, right? Uh, so, so, anyway, so Cleckley was born in Augusta, Georgia. His parents were Dr. William Cleckley and Cora Cleckley. Uh, so his sister went to school. He's a American. Okay. His... Um, I think he went to Oxford. Um, yeah, quite a guy. He graduated from some high school in 1921, and he went on to get a million awards. Okay, he graduated from University of Georgia Medical School in August of 1929, okay? After several years of psychiatric practice in the Veterans Administration, he became professor of psychiatry and neurology at the Medical College of Georgia, and in 1937, the Chief of Psychiatry and Neurology, okay? So, in 1955, he was, and remember, 1955 was only just a little bit around 70 years ago, because I was born in 1951, so they were just cooking this stuff up at this point, okay? Or at least that's how it appears to me. Okay, he was considered appointed chief professor of psychiatry, and um, he served as a psychiatric consultant to the Veterans Administration Hospital. He was part of some forensic group, and um, he had a private practice with this person called Corbett Thigpen, T-H-I-G-P-E-N, who also gets wrapped into this book deal, okay? Cleckley also intersected with a man named Virgil Seidenstriker. And this is where the story could get a little bit mucky. So um, I'm going to insert, I was going to do a show just about a segment about Seidenstriker, but I'm going to insert him here because that's the only way it will kind of make sense. Okay. Because Seidenstriker became highly, highly suspicious in my book okay and remember i'm just thinking through why i'm very suspicious now about this side striker person well side striker is also from georgia and i probably have more of his story here somewhere but 
sighted striker was also a professor of medicine and he became an internationally recognized specialist in hematology back at our blood again right and nutrition so Cleckley cooks up with this guy down the road here but let me tell you what i know now about sighted striker okay um because Cleckley became so moving in so many directions that i pulled together a little timeline but anyway so this got my attention about this deal with Sidon Stryker and Cleckley. He Sidon Stryker and Cleckley got together and they got together into the nutritional business. And um, they were the first to describe an atypical form of pellagra. What is pellagra, you ask? Well, I had a lot of questions about pellagra myself. It's now known as niacin deficiency. You know how you can take niacin and get that niacin flush? Um, so pellagra, known now as niacin deficiency, was in endemic in southern states. So a lot of states in the south had this pellagra, P-L-L-E-G-R-A. So... In 1939 and 1941, they, meeting Cleckley and Seidenstricker, published this article about niacidic acid, which is niacin or vitamin B3, as a treatment for abnormal mental states with psychiatric disorders. So they came up with this idea that niacin and vitamin B were good treatments for mental states, okay? The studies have been erroneously used to justify the use of mega vitamin therapy in psychiatric disorders such as schizophrenia. Well, there I'm back at schizophrenia again, right? And these two are cooking up ways to give them mega vitamin doses. Well, how did all these people end up with pellagra, which is a niacin deficiency? This is a part that I'm just puzzled over right now, okay? Cleckley practiced the use of controversial coma therapy, where psychiatric patients would be repeatedly put into coma over several weeks through overdoses of insulin, mesrazole, or other drugs. In the wake of sometimes fatal complications, Cleckley published in 1939 and 1941 advising on theoretical grounds that the administration of various vitamins, salts, and hormones. Hormones, you hear that word, okay? In 1951, he also published case studies research suggesting the use of electro stuff and all that kind of stuff. Well, what's fascinating is you get pellagra from what I now understand, from the overuse of corn products. Isn't that interesting? Overuse of corn products can deplete your niacin, which could lead you to possibly nutty behavior like schizophrenia. Well, why would I be interested in corn? Well, have you looked at any nutritional labels? They have corn in everything that we now consume. It's under so many different labels and descriptions Corn is the biggest additive we probably have in this country or in the world. High fructose corn. They now know that fructose corn syrup 
processes through our liver, which makes it even more deadly because people that eat too much food produced in this country can end up with fatty livers just like an alcoholic can. Corn, yeah. This country has corn and I think about 80-90% of our products. So yeah, so I, I got kind of going in circles here for a minute because I started thinking, well, wait a minute. Why are these two cooking up this deal with niacin? Well, were they then understanding that these uh, pellagra deals and the the niacin deficiency, did they learn at that point how to trigger more of it in more of us? I'm just asking out loud, right? Obviously, high fructose corn syrup could easily be traced without a PhD in science to the off-the-charts level of, uh, oh, I don't know, diabetes, heart attacks, all those kinds of things. So, yeah, this was interesting to me because of corn. We produce so much corn. Everything we have is corn. So, yeah, so I don't think it's as simple, or it could be. Is this overuse of corn depleting our other nutritional things, and these people didn't know about it. So yeah, so let me move along with Cleckley. So, uh, and I, I did a little timeline here to keep all this stuff straight. So um, in 1941, his book, The Mask of Sanity, which I encourage you to read for yourself, a free copy over at the website, um, it was revised until the 80s, but after he died, his daughter or son, or however you want to look at it, made the book publicly available for free downloads. So be careful when you look for books with free downloads because they'll try to get you to sign up for something and give them a dollar credit card. That's a scam. So just be careful when you look for free books. But the link I have there is, in fact, a free book. You won't have to put in a credit card or get involved in any weird deals. So... Uh, the Mask of Sanity was an attempt to clarify some issues about the so-called psychopathic personality. This became a landmark in psychiatric case studies and was repeatedly reprinted in subsequent editions. Okay, so then I found an interesting book that he did, um, which kind of... Um, let me get back here. The Mask of Sanity is distinguished by its central thesis that the psychopath exhibits normal function according to standard psychiatric criteria, yet privately engages in destructive behavior. The book was intended to assist with detection and diagnosis of the elusive psychopath for purposes of palliation and offered no cure for the condition itself. The idea of a master deceiver secretly possessed of no moral or ethical constraint, yet behaving in public with excellent function, electrified American society and led to heightened interest in both psychological and introspection and the detection of hidden psychopaths in society at large, leading to a refinement of the world word itself into what was perceived as less stigmatized term sociopath. Okay? People tend to believe that sociopaths are more ingrained in society and psychopaths are more of the criminal element. So uh, in the same year as he published The Mask of Sanity during World War II, key point in history here, Cleckley wrote an address warning in our present efforts to prepare for national defense, 
No problem which confronts the examining board for a selective service is more pressing or more, more subtle than that of the so-called psychopathic personality. He argued such soldiers were likely to fail, be disorganized, and a drain on time and resources. He recommended routinely checking for past encounters with law enforcement or drinking alcohol until incapacitated. See, they started early on to say that um, these psychopaths weren't organized. They're now see they they were describing the criminal elements of some levels of psychopaths. My view is the ones that are sharp enough to stay out of prison are the ones running society, right? And they ensnare a lot of people who aren't psychopaths to claim they're psychopaths to keep them in prison. It's it's the, the wolf in the hen house, right? Um. So, yeah, he's arguing about they should be defining if people are psychopaths or not before letting them in the military. I would argue in this dual world, they probably kicked into gear at that point and made selecting psychopathic military candidates more of a push, right? Weed out the empathetic ones for the psychopathic ones. But that's just my guess, right? What would I know about any of that, except for these people are highly suspicious? <laughs> okay, so he cr criticized the benign policy of the VA of not diagnosing more psychopathic personalities. Yeah, something else, right? So then moving along from the 40s to 1951, he also co-published a case study researching suggested uses of these different deep sleep therapies, electrical shocks to the brain. They wanted to learn how to do that without causing seizures. And he was really into all of those things. Um, let me make sure I have this. Uh, oh, okay. I'm going to go through a little bit of his history before I get to this Eve and the three phases of E part. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Three phases of E doesn't come along for a few years. So, uh, yeah, he was into pretty abusive treatments, if you ask me. Um, but anyway, um, oh, this and then here in 1952, where did all those people in New Orleans and stuff come up with this idea that they had? They were crazy, right? Well, Cleckley, along with this person called Walter Bromberg, a senior psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, they published an article on the insanity defense. They suggested changing the word, wording of it to, in your opinion, was the defendant suffering from disease of the mind? And if so, was it sufficient to render him unaccountable under the law for a crime charge? The concept of accountability was intended as an alternate to a narrow definition of responsibility which they had under this other law. They argue that mental illness can involve any part of the mind and that the insanity test should focus on the extent to which the accused mind overall, due to some interior pathology, whether obvious or masked, was unable to operate in accord with the law. However, 10 years later, a chapter by Cleckley on this magazine, Psychiatry, Science, Art, and scientism cautioned others against a common exaggeration of the abilities of psychiatry. 
to diagnose or treat. So he, he, you know, they always do these things and then later they come back and question them, right? In that regard, Cleckley expressed his agreement with a criticism by this person called Hakeem. Um, so he had claimed that psychiatrists exaggerate how clear their diagnostics terms are to each other. Well, yeah, it's all one big gang, right? Okay, now here we get to the part about Eve. Um, I think I am going to, um, I'm going to, let me see here. I'm going to, um, I'm going to talk about Eve. Yeah, I'll talk about Eve here because then I need to get to Bundy. Okay, so three phases of Eve. First published in 1957. Suffering from blackouts and loss of memory, Eve White seeks help from a psychiatrist, Dr. Curtis Luther, the one with the chin. <laughs> During one of this is about the this description about the movie, by the way. During one of their sessions, a completely different personality emerges, Eve Black. While she is aware of everything Eve White says and does, Eve Black's activities are unknown to the quiet, soft spoken Eve White. Eve Black is a wild child who likes to drink and dance and enjoys the company of men. The sudden changes in personality seriously affects Eve's marriage and she undergoes a lengthy period of hospitalization. Over time, the two personalities seem to accommodate one another. The emergence of a third personality, however, Jane, leads the doctor to the childhood trauma that is at the root of her personality disorder. So he co-authored this book. They wrote it actually in 1956, and the movie miraculously came out right about that time. So this person, Corbett Thigpen, it was his partner in private practice, and uh, they're both colleagues, and it was based on their patient. The patient's name was Chris Costner Sizemore, S-I-Z-E-M-O-R-E, who Thigpen especially had treated over several years. So they took this case study and they published it into a book. But first, they published a research article in 1954 documenting these sessions and how they came to view it as a case of multiple personality. So um, they also discussed in this book what is meant by personality and identity, noting how it can change in everyday senses, how people can become a new person and not themselves. Such a diagnosis has fallen into relative disuse in psychiatry, but Thigpen and Cleckley felt they had identified a rare case, though others have questioned the use of hypnosis and suggestion in creating some, if not all, of the characterization. And the diagnosis of multiple personality disorder, it's now called disassociative identity disorder, remains controversial despite or because of it, upsurges. And so there's a big upsurge in this. Uh, and I, I'm not going to get into all of why <clears throat> this is likely happening, because I obviously have some ideas on that. But for right now, we'll just talk about this idea of multiple personalities got sold by Cleckley. Okay. 
The book also served as a basis for the blockbuster movie The Three Phases of Eve, starring Joanne Woodward, in which Lee J. Cobb played the initial treating psychiatrist, and Jerome Edwin was the consultant. Now, Cobb is the one. Look for his chin. <laughs> I was just hit with a movie, <laughs> and they focus on his chin, and I could hardly keep it together at that point. So, um, so <clears throat> Thinkpin and Cleckley received writing question, writing credit. So they wrote the book, made a ton of money likely on the book, and then they reportedly got over a million dollars for writing the screen credits. Now, this starts to smack of a little bit of um, crazy ethical standards, if you ask me. But anyways, it was about Eve White, a mousy, mousy, withdrawn housewife, startles her husband when she claims she did not buy the flashy, provocative clothes he finds in their bedroom. After she complains of blackouts, he takes her to a psychiatrist who soon encounters her second personality, a sexy, uninhibited woman called Eve Black. As Eve's therapy continues, her third self, yeah, 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 okay, um, it's an American mystery drama film. They're, they're passing this off as true, okay, because they say the book is true, okay, so um, about the life of Okay, so they say um, the tagline for the movie, when I talk about the destruction of women and the attitude toward women, the three phases of Eve kind of says it all. The tagline for the movie poster, which you can find over at the website again, is a moment ago, she was the nicest girl in town. A moment from now, she will be anybody's pickup. That was the tagline for Three Faces of Eve. So, but the story gets a little bit interesting because remember, this is all a concocted story, right? So, Sizemore, who I mentioned earlier, who is also known in the book as Eve White, was a woman they suggested might have disassociative identity disorder, okay? Sizemore's identity was concealed in interviews about this film and was not revealed to the public until 1977. So initially, 20 years later, 57, the movie comes out, right? 77, the Sizemore woman, who claims that she was just depicted as Eve White in the movie, says that uh, she didn't know anything about it, um, this being a movie deal. Uh, Joanne Woodward won the Academy Award for Best Actress, making her the first actress to win an Oscar for portraying the three personalities. It became the first film since 1936 to win the Best Actress Award without getting nominated in another category. So, pretty significant movie. So, anyway, so I'll finish up with Eve and then I'll break into more about Cleckley next. In the book and film, Eve is cured of her alternate personalities, but Sizemore states that she was not free of them until many years later. Sizemore also alleges that she was not aware these session reports would be published outside of medical circles, or that she was signing over rights of her life story. Okay, uh, for $3 for the book rights, I don't know. It sold 2 million copies. Uh, she sought 
she fought unsuccessfully to stop the publication of videos and treatment sessions, but in I, 20 years, 30 years later, but in 1989 successively sued the film studio when it wanted to make a parody of the film. So <sighs> when Sizemore returned to Augusta for a speaking tour, see, th it, this, this shows the complexity of controlled opposition, right? The Sizemore person is supposedly Eve White. Then 20 years later, she says, hey, wait a minute. I didn't know this was going to be a movie. <laughs> and then she goes on speaking tours. When Sizemore returned to Augusta for a speaking tour in 1982, neither Thigpen or Cleckley attended, and she did not visit them. Though in 2008, she described the diagnosis and treatment of her as courageous. In 1984, Thigpen and Cleckley published a brief encounter in an international hypnosis journal cautioning against overuse of the diagnosis. So yeah, then they say, well, don't use this so much. So let me continue on here in a second with more about um, Cleckley. Okay, let's continue on about Cleckley. Hold on to your hats, kids. It's going to get wild. Let me pull up the file here. Cleckley was a very, very interesting person. And like I always say, just keep looking. You never know what they did that you might have missed the first time. So anyway, so we were up to the Eve business and kind of wandered off there. But let me pick this back up <clears throat> with his timeline that I put together. He was a busy, busy gal or guy. In 1957, Cleckley also published a book called The Caricature of Love. The mask, it was written by Hervey, Hervey Cleckley, the author of the classic text on psychopathy, The Mask of Sanity. With his extensive clinical knowledge and experience, in this volume, Cleckley plums the depths of sexual dysfunction and perversion, exposing their influence on culture and society. While Cleckley's views on homosexuality may be typical of his time, his analysis has broad applications, bringing insight to the dysfunction in homosexual and heterosexual relationships, the probable causes, and the sexual perversion of many of the leaders of our literary heritage. And quite a busy guy, isn't he, huh? From Plato to Marquet de Sade, Cleckley describes the twisted views of sexuality polarized via art and literature, making it highly relevant in today's hyper-sexualized culture. Now, I have not read this book, but the idea is he was pointing out the sexual strangeness of all of these popular cultural figures, right? Well, that has to tell you something about that crowd, right? <laughs> in concert with the, his more famous work on psychopathy, the caricature of love sheds important light on the problem of psycho Antho anthology. As 
is becoming increasingly clear in our time, positions of leadership are being saturated with such individuals, manifesting everything from government incompetence, economic failure, endless wars, and civil oppression, to human trafficking and pedophilia rings. Cleckley exposes the nature of what lies beneath these manifestations. Well, a lot of pretty sick things, right? So he did Eve in 57, 56, 57. He did this book about love to correct people's behaviors about love and show how twisted and sick they are. Always from the position that there's something really screwy about our brains, right? That these people need to correct with fake stories and fake examples. And here is where my head about spun backwards, okay? Just from that simple quote about Peniel and my favorite person, Ted Bundy. What was Cleckley up to in 1979? Well, he was a psychiatrist for the prosecution in the 1979 trial of serial killer Ted Bundy. It was the first case to be televised nationally in the United States. After interviewing Bundy and reviewing two prior reports, he diagnosed him as a psychopath. At the competency hearing, a defense psychiatrist also argued that Bundy was a psychopath. However, he concluded that Bundy was not competent to stand trial or represent himself while Cleckley argued that Ted Bundy was competent to both represent himself and stand trial. Very interesting intersection that we have Cleckley identifying Ted Bundy as a psychopath. Also, the very first televised crime in this country. All televised crimes in this country are fake. Fake, fake, fake. Okay. That is how they have, they, they, they use the movies and I'll be getting to that later. The movie, how the movie impacted our thinking. And they also very effectively use these court cases to give us these ideas about how law and order work. And I have uh, a few shows. I, I, I did release some shows back onto YouTube that aren't here on audio. What I did was um, I released them and I just turned off the comments and put a note that they could find me on audio because I'm not interested in engaging. But anyway, so um, yeah, look for my show on true crime because Ted Bundy, I mean, a lot of things about that crime were just so fake. I mean, just a lot of things. Um, so anyway, so um, yeah, interesting that Cleckley identifies Bundy as a psychopath and then um, Hare latches on to the psychopath and the dead, dead bunny things. <laughs> and then, so that was in 1979, the fake murder trial of Ted Bundy. So from 1984, Thigpen and Cleckley published a brief communication in an international hypnosis journal cautioning against overuse of the diagnosis of multiple personality disorder. I, for a lot of reasons, believe that there are um, there are some multiple personalities going on because I believe that people can be inhabited by other spirits, but I'm not going to get into it right now. 
But I also suspect that there could be some of those be induced by them. So um, somebody, some famous um, filmmaker who tried unsuccessfully to interview Cleckley said that he's one of the unsung 20th century figures. He popularized these ideas. He built them up. He sold them almost as a brand. Okay, almost as a brand. Matter of fact, Cleckley's work got trademarked by Hare. Um, so yeah, so this is how it got going. So um, I don't think I have much more to say about him right here, but let me scan down here for a second. Um, he did all that fishy stuff. Um, yeah, I think that is about it on Cleckley. He had, I would, I would say that he had a very significant part in the manipulation of our thought processes. You know, that three phases of Eve movie, the wife is succumbing to the husband who's telling her she's crazy, drags her off to the psychiatrist, the psychiatrist locks her up, they help correct Eve's behavior, and she becomes a new person. What they have essentially been doing is they have been modeling us to become more like them. And I will get into that much more later because I have this theory I've been working on called the others. The others and getting us to look the other way was a very, very significant point in all of this because you will notice that not many of these people got taken into these facilities kicking and screaming. Most of it went on a voluntary basis, getting people to gang up on other people and agree with these so-called experts. So I would argue it was all a big, huge trap. And when I get to the point about how they trapped the legal system here, it is priceless, okay? Eventually, we, we what happened was, in a nutshell, we all became convinced that we all had rights, okay? And when they did the trans, the thing with the slaves and the so-called declaring them free, well, they essentially tied up the legal system so that we are all, in fact, slaves of the system. And I'm not, I'm not joking around about that even lightly. In a very interesting and clever way, and it's always interesting when they do something that we cheer about, right? We think, oh, this is a sign things are going along great. Well, actually, we should have been crying at that point because things were not going along so great. So it's all just been a matter of simple manipulation on how we think and do things. So I think I'm done about Checkley for right now, but I think you can see that there's a lot going on here with how we got here. And we got here believing a lot of people who were out to destroy us. So... Anyhow, so I will be back with um, the final one on Robert Hare. Okay, let's talk about the one they call the godfather of psychopathy for our generation, Dr. Robert D. Hare. I met him in person. 
Yeah, I've already talked about all this, but just in recap, um, they have this group called the SSSP or something like that. It was a group they formed to go around and, you know, get together and chat about psychopaths. And I flew to one of their first group meetings. This would have been, oh, I don't know, late 1990s. Um, and they were holding a meeting in Florida, and that's where I met him in person. On the plane ride home, I was 100% sure he was a psychopath, but I hadn't put together the transgender part and all of that, and I've already discussed it in the past, so it pays to keep up because I'm not going to be repeating things that I can clearly remember talking about. So, Robert Hare. Also, before I get started on Hare, I mentioned a word at the end about psycho and psycho pathology, and I didn't know what that really meant. It is a study of abnormal cogn cognition, behavior, and experiences which differs according to social norms and rests upon a number of constructs that are deal deemed to be the social norm at any particular era. So, what it means is they have defined social norms, okay, for each era. And that's what I've been talking about, these eras of enlightenment and all of that. These are what they classify as so social norms, okay? And they deem that as how they're studying the rest of them based on these norms that they have themselves established for the rest of us. So along comes Robert Hare, and there's a person over on, you know, that Quora, Q-U-O-R-A site. She's a self-proclaimed psychopath. I forget what her name is, but she's been over there for years, and she brings up some pretty good points about Hare, and what she goes on about is that what a loser he is. And remember, she's a self-described psychopath, okay? I think her first name is Athena or something like that. But anyway, she goes on and on about how Hare just trademarked Checkley's work and made it his own. And that is exactly, she is 100% correct, that is essentially what happened was it was handed off to Robert Hare. Robert Hare, born 1934, a Canadian psychologist. He has a million awards that he's won. Uh, his site is called Hare, H-A-R-E dot org. I will not link to that because it is not a secure site. So if you want to go visit his site, you will have to click and agree that you're entering a non-secure site, which is kind of interesting considering how he hangs around the FBI and all this stuff. But that's kind of a side issue. But anyways, he's now kind of semi-retired, but he's a professor emeritus of the University of British Columbia. He has awards from everybody. Everybody has given this guy awards, okay? His studies center on psychopathology, the word we just learned, and psychophysiology. Hare developed the Hare Psychopathy Checklist, used to assess cases of psychopathy. He advises the FBI's child abduction and serial murder investigative resources and consults for various British and North American prison services. These people are heavily engaged in the prison system, but not for the reasons you think is for good. Because, for example, Dr. Gacono, who wrote the foreword to my book, contacted me. Oh, I don't know. It's been in the last months, not years, but the last months. And they just came up with a new study 
And what was the study about? Well, it's about identifying more females in the prison population as being psychopaths. Well, what would that look like? Well, they could get people like you or me who get falsely locked up. And if one of these so-called experts claim that we're a psychopath, then that finishes us and keeps us in prison, right? And they're doing all kinds of things in prison against the women. California now, a man can say that he thinks he's a woman, thinks, and get admitted to the women's prison in California now. Is that true? Yeah, likely it's true because of how screwed up these people are. So yeah, so he recently wrote to me when they were doing this new book and asked me if I would contribute. Well, (laughs) I never answered. Um, Why wouldn't I answer? Well, because I found the whole idea nauseating, okay, that the whole idea of this book was to identify likely innocent women and claim they're psychopaths. So I never responded, contacted me a couple of times, never responded. And the book came out and I don't know, I think they quoted me in the book. I can see it in the references, but I'm not going to spend a hundred dollars to buy the book. But yeah, it's pretty revolting because they're now busy as little bees trying to identify more women Now, keep in mind, they've never done any studies outside of the prison population. So we're looking at some pretty vulnerable people that these psychopaths themselves are going after. Okay, so anyway, so um, Hare's work was based on Cleckley's work, but with fundamental changes. Um, So the change really was that he came up with this psychopathy checklist. And it was to assess psychopathy primarily in the criminal justice system, okay? If you hear any of these people speak, they they get very fishy. They'll say things like, well, we're looking into it, but the facts speak for themselves. No studies have been done outside of the prison population. Dr. Hare has spent over 35 years researching psychopathy and is the developer of the Hare Psychopathy Checklist, a co-author of its derivatives. He only wrote this book and this checklist, okay? The checklist is to look for strong predictors of recidivism, violence, and response to therapeutic interventions. They play an important role in most risk-for-violence instruments. So what happens if you don't pass this little test they have, this PCLR, and you are in prison, they will say that you are a a psychopath and likely to re-commit your crimes. They use these terms and things to keep us locked up for longer is how it works. So yeah, so that is who Robert Hare is, okay? Um... I've already talked so much about him. I'm kind of bored with him. Um, I met him. I met his wife. His wife is in the um, child business. Yeah, 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 yeah. They also had a daughter, which I won't get too much into, that died of a, um, I believe, a hormone-induced disease. So, yeah, that's who's in charge there. Um, and I don't have much to say to them. He here has accused the DSM of... Uh, shifting clinical traditions. There's a big fight that has gone on between all of them over what words to use. It is still fuzzy and not clear. So the hair psychopathy checklist is sometimes used as a standard instrument for researchers and clinicians. 
especially in forensic settings such as prisons or high secure psychiatric units. The measure plays an important role in recent risk for violence instruments. The PCLR have been found to be strong predictors of recidivism. Well, yeah, but see, they missed the whole point, right? The people we're looking at are much too clever to get blood on their hands. Why use a weapon when you can use a writing pen, right? Much more effective, not as bloody, and e easier to screw with a lot of people. So in 1993, and I'll be wrapping up Hare here, Hare wrote two books, okay? This one in 1993 titled Without Conscience, The Disturbing World of the Psychopaths Among Us, and it was reissued in 1999. He described psychopaths as social predators while pointing out that most don't commit murder. One philosophical review described it as having a high moral tone, yet tending towards sensationalism and graphic anecdotes, and as providing a useful summary of the assessment of psychopathy, but ultimately avoiding the difficult questions regarding internal contradictions in the concept or how it should be classified. Yes, his book is a very short, almost pamphlet-sized book. It's very small. Uh, it mainly talks about serial killers. <laughs> so he also participated in one other book. I don't know this for a fact, but I suspect he put his name on the book in cooperation with this other shaky researcher, okay? They say that he co-authored the best-selling book called Snakes in Suits, When Psychopaths Go to Work. He did that with his organizational psychologist and human resources consultant named Paul Babiak. It was a portrait of the disruptions caused when psychopaths enter the workplace. The book focuses on what Hare refers to as the successful psychopath, who can be charming and socially skilled and therefore able to get by in the workplace. This is by contrast with the type of psychopath whose lack of social skills or self-control would cause them to rely on threats and coercion and who would probably not be able to hold down a job for long. See how wrong this whole theory is? I mean, if you believe this guy's theory, then you would have to say that my whole theory is completely wrong. <laughs> so, this is why information is important, to make up your own minds, okay? So Hare also appeared in a 2003 documentary called The Corporation. So um, discussing whether his criteria for psychopathy could be said to apply to modern business as a legal personality, appearing to conclude that many of them would apply by definition. But see, he is always very um, shaky in what he says, because remember, there are no studies. So at this juncture, if there were studies, he would say, yes, based on this study that I did, blah, 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 we found that blah, 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 blah. But that th those words never enter into his vocabulary. Um, Hare's views are recounted with some skepticism. the bestseller, The Psychopath Test. That was that book by Ron Johnson, John Ronson. John Ronson and Hare got together. They cooked up that idea, and then Hare got some... Um, pushback from his so-called other researchers and so then he said oh john ronson nothing to do with the guy where in fact 
what they did was Ronson and Hare got together. Ronson went on the TED Talk circuit talking about psychopaths. And he seriously concludes his talk and laments and says, well, actually, we were all probably psychopaths. Well, sorry, folks, but not all of us are psychopaths. But see how they want to confuse the issue. So anyhow, so Hare eventually kicked back and said, oh, I don't, I don't think that's true. So um, he was a consultant for some other book about a high-functioning sociopath, which, you know, Hare has fought the word sociopath. It, it's just, it's stupid. Um, Hare's research on the cause of psychopathy focused initially on whether such persons showed abnormal patterns of anticipation or response, such as low levels of anxiety or high impulsiveness. So, yeah, uh, following Checkley, Cleckley, I keep calling Checkley, Cleckley, Hare investigated whether the fundamental underlying pathology is a semantic affecting deficit and inability to understand or experience the full emotional meaning of life events. Yes, they have to model our behavior because they are not like us. Um, so, yeah, he claims that he did all that, but I would argue that not much was ever done. Harris' contention that the pathology is likely due to a large part to an inherited or hardwired deficit in cerebral brain function and that remains speculative. Well, I think we ended up a lot dumber than we started, right? Obviously, not much research has been done. Obviously, this has all been speculation. Obviously, they are trying to make us be more like them. And I would have to say it has been a winning strategy. Everywhere I look, I'm trying to figure out, am I looking at people who are true psychopaths or people who are modeling psychopathic behavior? In either case, I would check your behaviors at the door because I don't think there's going to be a lot of reward to come for people who went after and abused the rest of us. So anyway, so goodbye for now. Be safe out there. Doctor, my eyes have seen the years And the slow parade of fears without crying Now I want to understand I have done all that I could To see the evil and the good without hiding You must help me if you can Doctor, my
start to cry.